the 31st of May. So if you've never been baptized or if you want to hear about baptism, you know, and so on, 145 upstairs. So let's open our scriptures to Genesis chapter 14. Question is, how does God work in history? What is his involvement in the course of time? You know, the three chapters in front of us, chapter 14, 15, 16, reveal to us how delicately and how respectfully his hand gently guides us through time. It's not, you know, it's not completely true that history is his story. Our history is ours. We make it, we shape it, but he makes sure that we don't completely spoil it or that we prematurely put an end to it. He actually walks with us. This is what we're going to see. He surrounds us and most of the time he holds us down and repairs the consequences of our actions while always looking for our well-being. And often when we think that all is lost, he comes and he restores all things and takes special, special care to the oppressed and to the needy. It is in the last chapter, 16, where we see the first appearance of the angel of the Lord, who is the visible manifestation of God, who is the Messiah himself. He appears in the scriptures to comfort a rejected maid and her son, Hagar and Ishmael. He followed them in the wilderness, provided for them, and he brings them back home to Abraham, the king of kings, to the time to come down from heaven to reassure the oppressed. This is the beauty I want to tell you of the God of the scriptures. And it is to Hagar that he comes first. God surely doesn't make the distinction we often make. His love is spread evenly to everyone from all walks of life. And in chapter 15, we see him on earth again, and here he converses with Abraham, who went through a very hard ordeal. And it is there where he pronounces two of the most powerful words in the scriptures. Fear not. 15.1. Fear not, Abraham. I'm your shield. By these words, he assured Abraham of his eternal presence and his goodness with which he promises to shield him, to guard him, to defend him, and to defend us. Because these words are for us as well. Fear not is the best part of the Abrahamic covenant. Of any covenant. By these words God tells us that whatever the case is, whatever the circumstances, He will be side by side with us. It is this great aspect of our God that we often missing out, we miss out, right? Beyond the veil of sin and of judgment, God is a loving Father. And in chapter 14, we're going to see that Abraham was definitely not alone in Canaan. It was such a dangerous and also a very busy place. So many people, so many kings eyeing each other's wealth. We find just in this chapter 14, some 20 kings are named. And 30 different places are also named in there. This section is a gold mine if you want for historians. You know, I was under the impression that Abraham came to a somehow deserted place. But he had to fight his way in and always find a suitable spot to stay. He never owned any land and he was always on the move, finding ways around the many cities and villages of these Canaanites. We've seen that many times God reaffirmed the land covenant with Abraham at least three times, right? It is from 12 to 15. Now we better understand why, seeing that all the people there and how busy it was. Now we can appreciate these reaffirmations. Now let us read the three first verses of chapter 14 and try to put it in context with the flow of Genesis. 
We're going to name a lot of kings here, but see if you can recognize at least four of them. Four. One, two, three. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariel, king of Elassar, Shedar Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. And they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Now, who are these people and what is their relation to the story of Genesis? Here in the story, the first four kings in verse 1 come from very far. They came and subdued many kingdoms in Canaan who periodically paid them a large sum of money. And here the five kings of verse 2 decided to stop paying the tributes. And so the first four kings of verse 1 came to Canaan to settle the matter. And so we're witnessing a war. The first 11 verses describe in detail this war for us. It is a strange war. And at first you wonder what it's doing in Genesis. And it is given a very ironic touch. Especially when you read the last words of verse 9. Right? This one ends with the words, four kings against five. As if to tell us, see these invaders, they were fewer and they won four against five. Perhaps it is as if this is in preparation of what we will read later, especially in verse 14, when Abraham beats these four powerful kings with only 318 people. It says, now when Abraham heard in verse 14 that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That is quite a victory against these four kings. These were very well organized. They were able to make war 2,000 miles away from home. And we know that they were very strong because they did not only subdue five kings. They subdued the, Amor, the Amorites, the Amalekites, and especially in verse 5, the Rephaim, that is the giants. So Abraham, like David, went to fight this Goliath of an army and he won. There's a message for us here. Lesson number one, it matters not of the size or the strength of the army. If God is with you, you will surely win. Four against five is impressive. But just a bunch of shepherds against four armies is miraculous. And when you deal with God, always expect the miracle, right? And the number 318 reminds us of what? Of the 300 soldiers in Judges chapter 7 whom Gideon took and fought the army of the Midianites, an army of 135,000 people, and he won because God was with him. Here the number 18 is added. We don't know why. It's interesting to notice that the number 18 is the sum of the letter of Eliezer, the servant of Abraham. Perhaps it is to show that it was an army of servants. Like it says, servants, trained servants who were born in, the, in his own house. But there must be more to this number. We do not know. And it is in verse 12 where we understand Abraham's involvement in this war. See what it says. They also took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Lot was Abraham's nephew, and he took it upon himself to go and deliver him and bring him back home. Again, why are we having this story right here? In this part of Genesis. Let's try to make sense of it. 
First, let us pay close attention to the four kings who came to the promised land. They came as conquerors. They look so much like four other kings that we know. Those mentioned by Daniel the prophet in Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 7. And these are the kings, especially the first one, who began the times of the Gentiles, like Jesus speaks in Luke 21, 24, which leads to the second coming of Christ. And two of them we can identify right here in Genesis 14. They are the same. The first one, Amraphel, king of Shinar. You know what Shinar is? The land of two rivers. Shinar is Babylon. This is where it is. Babylon or Babel, right? There it is again with a particular interest in the land of Israel. Just when Abraham came in, they were there. So it was not only the Canaanites that were in the land. And the second one is Shedar Laomer of Elam, the third one. That is Persia. They also seem in a hurry to take over the land. Just like it would be in Ezekiel 38, as even now I believe they are preparing themselves to attack Israel. Both occupied the land then, until they were chased away by Abraham, but they came back and took control of it. The two others, we cannot identify them. However, the rabbis in the Midrash, rabbi are convinced that the two others are the two others of Daniel the prophet. This is where they wrote... And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. This alludes to Babylon. They understood that. Arioch of Eleazar. This alludes to Greece. Shedar Laomer, king of Elam. That is Media. And Tidal, king of Goim. That is the nations. See especially the last one. Tidal, king of Goim. Goim in Hebrew means the nations. This king is the king of the nations. This may remind us of the power of Rome. Which conquered more territory and kings than any other of its predecessors. And lasted the longest time. And he may re- this may remind us of the last king of Daniel, who is yet future, whom we know as the kingdom of the Antichrist, who is about to establish his kingdom right after the rapture of the church. You know, this story we have here may be a foreshadow of the whole history of Israel. It is like a prophecy of the coming kingdoms against Israel and of its future restoration. Abraham, who represents Israel, miraculously chases them away with only a pocket full of soldiers, just like the stone in Daniel that comes out and breaks down that whole statue and all the kingdoms of the Goins fall down. And this is where we have the account of someone very mysterious. These four kings are only the beginning of the story in this chapter. It is the introduction to another passage in, the, in this chapter that is among the most difficult ones to understand. And he deals with a mysterious man. You heard of him, Melchizedek. Who is he? After that, Abraham, Abraham goes to war and comes back. He is met with two individuals. One is the king of Sodom and one is the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Here's the story of the good and the bad king. Let's read verses 17 to 20. And let's start to figure out who actually this man is. So then the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is Abraham, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. After his return from the defeat of Shedar Laomer and the kings who were with him, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, 
of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abraham, gave him a tithe of all. Now, who is Melchizedek? Where does he come from? Now, bear with me here. Because there is a great blessing in understanding the person of Melchizedek because he, 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 in a very special way, points to our Lord and Savior, Yeshua. What is intriguing here is that he is called the priest of God Most High. When there was no priesthood yet established. Israel was not yet born. There was no Jews yet. But Abraham knows him. And he recognizes him as a priest and gives him a tithe. This is new. It is King David, actually, who gives us the interpretation of this passage in Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is a messianic prophecy. Here in Psalm 110, verse 4, he says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But who was he speaking to? He was speaking to the Messiah. In verse 1, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. It is recognized as a messianic prophecy. And in verse 4, he says, But you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, being a messianic prophecy, speaks of Jesus. Even Jesus attributed this psalm to himself, if you remember in Matthew 22, when they came to him. And Jesus said to him, what do you think that David was speaking about? Who do you think he was speaking of? When he said, the Lord said to my Lord, who's Lord of David? Since he was a king. And he, he explained that this is the Messiah that was himself. And again, we're told in verse 4 that the Messiah, Yeshua, is the priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek is then a priesthood that was established from the very beginning as God began to provide salvation to the world. It is an eternal priesthood. Melchizedek then typifies this priesthood. He speaks of Jesus. If Abraham paid tithes, it is because he understood this priesthood. He understood the coming of a mediator because the Old Testament Saints understood that there would be a mediator. Even Job asked for a mediator. And so from the beginning what we understand is that Yeshua was already our priest. He was Adam's priest. He was every saved person priest. This is the priesthood that is everlasting because forever we will be in heaven because he is our savior. But we need to demystify the man Melchizedek. It is not according to Melchizedek, right? but according to the order of Melchizedek. There's a difference. It is the eternity of the priesthood, not of the man Melchizedek, who, is, who actually typifies the Messiah. His presence is important in that it foreshadows and even guarantees that the seed spoken of in Genesis 3.15 was coming, and that God will make the enemies, his enemies, his footstool, just like Abraham did with the four kings. But there's more to this king. The Spirit of God in the book of Hebrews goes even further to explain and to demystify the presence of Melchizedek and brings us closer to Jesus the Messiah. Hebrews 7, 1 to 3, I want to read it for you. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of Most High God, who made Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, First being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Solomon, meaning king of peace. Without father, 
without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of Man, remains a priest continually. See that Melchizedek carried this two position that later only the Messiah can carry, right? He was king and he was priest. At the same time, in Israel, one could only be a priest or a king, never both. The kings were from the tribe of Judah and the priests were from the tribe of Levi. But Yeshua was both and Melchizedek, who came before the birth of Israel, was both, thus foreshadowing actually the Messiah who was coming. And this is the argument of the author of Hebrews. While many Messianic Jews at that time contemplated returning to the system of the Mosaic law because of fierce persecution by the religious leaders, the Spirit here reminds them that in the law the priesthood was only temporary. That the law was only a shadow of things to come. Do not worship the shadow, but worship the real thing. This is the argument of Hebrews chapter 7. And it is especially in verse 3 of Hebrews 7 that clarifies the Melchizedek. Without father, he says. Without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning or days, nor end of life. This is the way, by the way, he appeared in Genesis 14, coming out of nowhere. Hebrews doesn't say that he did not have a father or mother. He did, actually, because he was only a man. It says in verse 3 here that he's like the Son of God. But the fact that his genealogy is not revealed to us is the main point. Again, what is forever is not Melchizedek, who is a man, but the priesthood of Yeshua. This is what it's all about. Like every other part of the scriptures, it's all about our Savior, Yeshua. You know, this may be complicated, but at the core of it, it is not. It simply tells us that God took care of our salvation from the very beginning. That Jesus died from the foundation of the world, just like it says in Revelation 13.8. He was Abraham's Savior. He was Noah and Adam and Seth and Enoch Savior. It was all possible because they all had a priest waiting for them. In the heavens, Yeshua, Mashiach, this is the message here. But let us go further. There is one question we need to answer. If Melchizedek was a man, who was he? Okay, maybe we're going too far, but we'll go too far. If Abraham knew him, so we must be able to locate him. After all, we know the story from the very beginning. I will begin by quoting you who the rabbis of the time of Jesus believed he was. For the most part, we cannot agree with them, but we know that these ancient rabbis did spend much time digging in the Word of God, and at times they hid great boulders of precious stones. This is especially true of the ancient rabbis before the time of the Messiah. Let me read you what the Targum of Jonathan says about Genesis 14.18. This again was a translation and paraphrase of the Bible that they used at the time of Jesus. It says, The righteous king Melchizedek is Shem, the son of Noah, king of Jerusalem. He went out to meet Abraham and brought him bread and wine. They believe that Melchizedek is Shem. How can they come to this? At first reading, what might think that they are so off? How could Melchizedek be Shem? But let us try to find out how they got to see that Melchizedek is in fact Shem. You know, at the time of Abraham, who were the patriarchs? Who were the priests? Usually, the father of the family. We remember Job offered sacrifices 
for his own children in case they had sinned. Right in chapter 1. So the father filled the priestly role. And in Genesis 14, if Abraham gave a tithe, it must be to a one of his patriarch. Who then was this patriarch? We must then go back to the oldest one living at the time, and the oldest one living at the time was Shem. He lived at the time of Abraham, he even lived at the time of Isaac. This is where the rabbi went that far. And if it is Shem, who is the man behind Melchizedek, then the whole thing even becomes more significant. Shem is the first in the line of genealogy of Jesus. A genealogy that goes from Abraham, David to Jesus, like the first verse in the New Testament. Jesus, the son of David and the son of Abraham. There we see the fulfillment. And you know when you name a child, you name him after something, after someone. What? When Noah named Shem, he named him after who? You know, Shem means the name. Whose name is it? We don't know, but I'd love to believe that he meant the name above all names, which is Jesus Christ, our Savior. And beyond all these things, the message is very, very practical. From the nine kings we have seen in the first 11 verses and the many other present in, the, in this chapter, in verse 17, beginning in verse 17, it zeroes into two main kings, Melchizedek and the king of Sodom, the good and the bad. Melchizedek means... The king of righteousness. And you know what Sodom means? Burning. You can't get more evangelical than this, right? That is the gospel of Abraham in one verse. Burning or righteousness. Choose your king. God in heaven or king of Sodom. And we are told much about this king of Sodom. In fact, his story is actually interrupted by the appearance of Melchizedek. As when salvation comes and saves us from a natural path away from God. The sequel of verse 17 actually is really 21. But verse 18 to 20 is only about Melchizedek. It is a message of salvation in the midst, if you want, of burning. In the midst of the fire of this earth. Now let us see what this king of Sodom says to Abraham when he meets him. And we're going to compare him with Abraham. At this time, Abraham delivered the captives of Sodom with all their goods. Verse 21 to 24, look what it says. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from the th a thread to a sandal strap, and that it I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abraham rich, except only that the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So here we have such a sharp contrast between Melchizedek, Abraham, right? Especially Melchizedek who brought wine and bread to Abraham in order to shear him up, and the king of Sodom, who foregoes all greetings and politeness, and what are his first words? Give me. Give me. We used to have a song, you know, with the children, when they were young. Give me, give me, doesn't get. Don't you know your manners yet, he used to say. Right? Give me. What about, thank you so much for bringing my people back. Right? You would have thought that he would thank Abraham for what he did for him. After all, he delivered the people of Sodom and he also brought back their goods. But right away, this king thinks that he can get something from Abraham. 
You know, I just want to tell, tell you, evil is never grateful. Never grateful. In fact, the king of Sodom is so clever, or at least he thinks he is, that he offers Abraham what actually already belongs to Abraham. He tells me, give me this and you can take the rest. Right? But the this and the rest belongs to Abraham who fought for them and owed them all. You know, the book of Proverbs says it so well. Proverbs 30 verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. Right? There are three things that are never satisfied. Four. Never say enough. Give me, give me. Right? The leech spoken of here is Aluka. A horse leech. Some understood the Aluka to be some vampire-like demon. Proverbs 30 verse 15 is like a great definition of what greed is. But see and be refreshed by the action of Abraham. You know what Abraham does? He gives it all. Take it all. He says, everything is yours. Take it all, he says. He did not want to have anything to do with someone else's goods. Take this and take the rest. How come Abraham did not keep anything for himself? What happened there? I just want to tell you, Abraham had a secret weapon called faith. Right? This strong shield, nothing could pierce through. He refused because he knew he had greater riches in heaven. Nothing on earth could compare to them. He looked up to heaven where his home was. So that the things of this earth, when we do that, by the way, when you look at heaven, when you remember what God has given you, right? The things of this earth do not matter anymore as much. And this chapter also speaks of the riches of Lot. Right? Remember Lot? He was attracted to the green grass over the fence as we saw last week. He was already rich and he went towards Sodom to become richer. But you know that in verse 12 he says he lost it all. Completely. And they also took Lot, it says, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, it says. He lost it all. You know what lot means in Hebrew? It means a covering. It means a veil. Lot, as a believer, because he was a believer, was blinded by the riches of this world and he forgot God. This happens so much. We're so much like Lot. But greed is a mark of those of this world. They say that greed is a logical result of the belief that there is no life after death. No heaven, nothing. If you don't believe in anything after death, you probably are greedy. You know, there's a story in Greek mythology which also describes well the nature of greed. Midas, the Phrygian king, asked a favor of the gods, and they agreed to grant him anything that he desired. So the king decided to make the best of the offer. So he asked that whatever he touches in the future be turned into gold. So the wish was granted and he was so happy about it, he placed his hand upon a rock and it became gold. And immediately it became a huge chunk of priceless gold. He became very rich. He laid his hand on anything and it became gold. However, when supper time came, he could eat, right? Everything he touched became gold, right? What's the use of gold, right? We can eat. It is at this time that he realized that this, this foolish wish would cause him to die in the midst of a newly found riches. And he fearfully remembered these words. The gods cannot take back their gifts. Although this particular tale is a mere fable, 
We see this story manifest itself every day in the lives of many people, even believers like Lot. God often does bless people with wealth, but never at the cost of forgetting actually our true wealth in heaven. You can be rich, it's okay, it's fine. But not at the cost of what you have. Not at the cost of the ministry that God called you to do. And one more thing before we move on to the next passage. Did you notice that Abraham, what Abraham tells the king of Sodom, there's something nice in verse 23. Towards the end he says, I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. There's something about sandal strap that came to represent the least of someone's goods. It is written in the Talmud, actually it says that a student is able to help his rabbi in many areas of need, except he was not allowed to loosen or even touch his sandal strap. Loosening of the sandal strap was delegated either to a servant or a slave. And this was used, by the way, by John the Baptist, you remember, right? In Mark 1, 7, when they told them, hey, who's your actually Savior that's coming? And he says, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stood up, stood down and loose, right? John the Baptist was then speaking their language and using their own terms to show that Jesus is above any of their teachers. He's above the name, above all names. Abraham and John the Baptist understood the same thing. Nothing is worth more than the Messiah. Both compared the Messiah to the highest good we can own. One more thing about Melchizedek, and an important one. Why did Melchizedek bring bread and wine? You know, on the surface, this is such a thoughtful action, right? It's Melchizedek wanted to give some comfort to Abraham. Then he, when he came back, of course, from his long ordeal, bread in case he was hungry, wine to make the heart merry and to show him the joy of, of seeing him. But you know that these two items are the items that the Messiah asks us to take and to remember when we will be with him in paradise. Right? When he will greet us, in paradise, he's going to have a cup of wine that he promised he will have with us, just like you have it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. These two items, we find them in the Last Supper. And these are the two items that the Spirit of God commands us to remember when we're together and eat. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. As often as you eat, and we eat how many times a day? Three times a day. You remember Christ all the time. You invite Him for supper with you. The bread and the wine are two items that were always present at the table at the time. And because eating is a joyous event, Jesus is jealous. He wants to be with you when you're happy. Invite Him. You know, I don't think our Melchizedek saw that far in the future, but we who live in the end of age and have the New Testament and those more revelation can make that beautiful correlation. And it is now that we come to a most, most beautiful place in the scriptures. Genesis 15, one verse, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. After these things. After the wars, after the fears, after the concerns, after the long trip to Damascus and back, God comes down from heaven to Abraham and tells him, Abraham, don't be afraid, I'm with you. 
And this is, by the way, the first time God pronounces these beautiful words, fear not. The next time he pronounces them was to Isaac, in Genesis 26. And the next time was to Jacob, in Genesis 46. And then so many times to Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, as if to assure them that the messianic line, the seed, will never be interrupted. And that they had nothing to fear amidst all these giants around them. And Abraham needed to hear this. It is possible that Abraham understood the extent of his victory over the four kings and perhaps feared a reprisal. This is when our God comes and says, no, no, it's fine, I'm taking care of them. You know, they say that the worst fear, when you fear, is fear itself, right? When you fear that the worst will happen, your own thoughts may help it to bring it about. Someone wrote that fear is the wrong use of our imagination. It is anticipating the worst, not the best that can happen. And I just want to tell you, this is not fitting for a believer who is called to rejoice Always, in any circumstances. You know, a true story about a woman who had just returned from a trip to Mexico called the Los Angeles police to report that a rattlesnake has, was loose in her overnight bag. Police went rushing to the scene with sirens screaming. They approached the bag, which the woman threw out the window. Cautiously, they scattered the contents of the bag only to find out that the rattlesnake was caused by an electric toothbrush accidentally turned on. The woman's fear, as the majority of our fears, right, was not founded at all, right? So what we have learned so far today from this great passage of Genesis, remove the mysteries and the history and see that this whole passage is truly a declaration of love from God. What really comes out is this soul verse in Abraham's importance in the, in the eyes of God. You know, last Sunday when Sharon and I were driving to Ottawa, there was a song sung by Frank Sinatra. This is how it went. You are nobody until somebody loves you. You are nobody, nobody, until somebody loves you. And when I heard these things, I was actually reading Genesis 15, and I thought to myself, I am somebody. Eh? I am somebody because someone loves me, and what love is this, right? Every believer is a somebody. Don't let ever somebody or a thought tells you that you're not somebody. You are kings. We are kings of God. Because God loves us so much, this is what comes out here. We are not to fear anything. And never, again, never say to yourself that you are nobody. Right? And it's this great letter of Ephesians, you remember, where we are told that God loves us so much that He poured, He lavished us, in verse 8, upon us all the blessings from heaven. They are all there for us, for the taking. Now let us see our last section for today. After that, Abraham refused to take anything from what he considered belonging to the king of Sodom. God then comes to him and assures him that he has kept for him an exceedingly great reward, it says, at the end of verse 1, chapter 15. By the way, the word used here is much greater than the usual word for great. Gadol is the usual word for great, but here it's rabbah, means multiply. You take the gadol and you multiply it many times. This is the idea. Meod rabbah sakal, that is, very greatly multiplied your rewards, like in the book of Ephesians. 
He lavished all everything upon us. And it is here where we see Abraham's true heart. In the following verses, his first question, as this is the first time actually he speaks to God. He doesn't ask anything for himself. But what is he worried about? His thought is for the descendant, the continuity of the line of Shem. See the next verse. Next verses. They laid the foundation by the way of the feud we will see later in chapter in the next chapter. Let's read verses two to six. It says, But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And this is an important verse, by the way, verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham first was worried, not for himself, but for the next generation. He understood. He, I think he understood Melchizedek. He understood where he was going. He understood the first prophecy in Genesis 3.15. And Eliezer was Abraham's servant. And the law of the time reflected in the law of Hammurabi and the Nuzi tablets, that if one did not have a son, the chief servant who was born in the household actually will be the heir. This is why he says this. So Abraham, like Mary, remember Mary when she was told that she was going to have a child without being married? Was wondering how God was going to bring this about, right? The question is the same. Hey, I mean, I'm old. My wife is old. How am I going to have a child? God then tells him to go right away, outside. He doesn't tell him how he's going to do it. Rabbi, he says, go outside and look up towards the heaven and count the stars, right? So shall your descendants be. Abraham saw these thousands of stars. Uh, uh, by the way, have you ever gone uh, outside, you know, let's say in the north or in nature, far away from the city lights and looked up the sky? H how many stars are there? Uh, no one really knows, right? Uh, no, I, I can give you a number, but you and I will not understand it. But l let me tell you to the least, they say that there are at least a hundred billion of them. But how big is a hundred billion? Let me tell you. If you were to count 250 stars a minute, day and night, it would take you about 1,000 years to count a hundred billion. So multiply this by a few trillion that they say, the probable number of galaxies, and perhaps you have a better understanding of the power of the promise of God to you and what Jesus Christ has done for you. But it is in the words we find in verse 6 that must be one foundation verse for the whole of the scriptures. There he said, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted to him for righteousness. By the way, this is all it takes. Believe in God. Only believe and truly believe and you will be counted as righteous. In the biblical language, this means that you will be saved forever and ever because only the righteous actually believe like this. This section we'll see more in depth next week when we come to study the book of Genesis. But I would like to conclude with the word believe in this verse. Do you know what the word believe is in this verse? It's the word amen. Right? This is what he reads. And Abraham said, 
Amen. And the Lord said, Hey, you are saved. This is what it is. Right? Yeah. The word Amen is more than a word. It is an important concept. Right? The root idea is that of absolute certainty. It is a word which includes faith, trust, firmness, fidelity. This is the name of our Messiah. Did you know that in Revelation 3.14, He is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. These words, by the way, in Revelation 3, was, were spoken to the church of Laodicea, the unbelieving church. So Jesus says, well, in contrast to you, this is who I am. And this is who a believer is, a faithful and true witness. The word Hebrew, Amen, through the years found its way in many languages. It was transliterated directly from the Hebrew into the Greek of the New Testament, then into Latin and into English, and many other languages, so that it is practically a universal word. It has been called the best known word in human speech. And so to conclude, again, I don't know how many times I said that, but to conclude, <laughs> we may see that these 20 kings, and the words that we have seen in chapter 14, how busy the world was and is today. The king of Sodom saw only the material goods. So did Lot. But he lost it all. Abraham, Melchizedek appear in the text as light in a very dark cave. And God himself appears as a gracious father. Always looking to bless and do bless. Let me give you a last story. It's a true story. It's about a woman named Lily Baltrip. She was a good bus driver according to uh, the Fourth Ward Star Telegram of June 17, 1988. Houston School District nominated her for a safe driving award. Her colleagues even trusted her to drive a busload of, of them to an award ceremony for safe driver. And fortunately, on the way to the ceremony, Lily turned a corner too sharply and flipped the bus, the bus over, sending herself and 16 others to the hospital for minor emergency treatment. Uh, did Lily accidentally... Uh, actually, she accidentally turned the bus, but do you think that she deserved that uh, price? Actually, she did not get it. Why do you think she did not get it? Didn't give it to her. Because our committees rarely operate on the principle of grace. But God, I think, would have given it to her. Right? We fall and we rise. We fall and we rise. This is the story of Abraham so far. How many times did he fall? He's going to fall again in the next chapter. And so on and so forth. But God gives him that price. And this is the same price we will receive. Okay, if we follow, if we made our Lord and Savior, Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that is then we will have this price ourselves. Let's bow our head in prayer. Again, Heavenly Father, we're so filled. Filled by the music. Filled by your prayers. Filled by the presence of your own here. Filled by your word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the depth of your word, for all the details that we have. Nothing is put amiss. And we, help, we ask you, Lord, to help us to make sense of all these things, Lord, so that we... We can grow to know you better. One thing we have seen is that you are our father. You are our dad, always looking after us. We thank you, Lord, and I ask you, Lord, to bless each and everyone here. Everyone, Lord, as we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. If you have any questions or